Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are continuing our way through this epistle in chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. We have our text in the bulletin this morning. You can follow along there or in a physical Bible, but please follow along with us as we hear God speak to us. And before we begin, let us pray. Father, you invite us to a feast this morning that you are commanding us to taste and see that you are good, that your steadfast love does endure forever. Father, I pray that we would be able to see your promises, your gospel in the book of Ephesians this morning, that you would set me apart, that you would put me aside, open my lips to declare the mysteries that you have revealed in your word. Pray that you would open all of our eyes and see ourselves as not just people listening, but active participants here this morning. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can I have Jesus Christ without the church? Is it possible for me to have a vibrant relationship with the living God and have no relationship to his people. You may have heard of R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier Ministry, and they actually have been putting out surveys every two years or so. It's called the State of Theology, and they are asking just general theological questions of the average American and how they would answer certain theological questions, and you can even see what the average evangelical would say. And in 2022, here are some of the answers they received from a few questions they gave. Out of 3,000 participants, 67% agree with this statement. The worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. And out of those 3,000, 55% of self-professing evangelicals agreed with that as well. Here's another question. 56% or 55% disagreed with this, that every Christian has an obligation to join the church. And of those, 44% of self-professing evangelicals also agreed with that statement. That we live in a society that loves to emphasize 
our individualism, that we are Americans, that we have this idea of rugged individualism that we have had within our culture for centuries. But that actually, to one degree or another, stands at odds with what a large portion of the church has taught. Because our confessional standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, here's what it says about the church. The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and is a kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Or going further back, the ancient church father that Calvin lovingly approved of, Cyprian once said, no one can have God as their father unless they have the church as their mother. Can I have Jesus Christ without the church? Our text this morning is pointing us in this direction. It's at least helping us with these questions because it sees both this personal relationship and the corporate nature, the corporate body of the church, but where we, as modern readers, like to make a tension and a conflict here, the Bible does not see them at odds, but rather in harmony with each other. Because really, the, the thrust of what Paul is trying to tell us, the thrust of what God is teaching us this morning through our text is this. Due to the work of Jesus Christ, we have both personal and corporate blessings in God's covenant of grace. That again, the point of what Paul is teaching us here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that there are both personal and corporate blessings in being in God's covenant family. Because look again at our text. Look at verse 19. What does Paul say? Paul has moved from what Pastor Will spoke about last week, <clears throat> that we have been reconciled by Christ's blood. We, he has brought down that dividing wall of hostility, verses 14 through 18. But now the section this morning, what we are reading today, is pointing us to the present result, essentially the therefore of what we heard last week, and it is in verse 19. Because Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is alluding to what we have heard earlier, where in verse 12, he, at the very beginning of this section, told us that at one time, the Ephesians believers were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were without hope. They were without God in this world. And in verse 19, it is again pointing to the reality that they are no longer these strangers to God. They are no longer in this hostile relationship with God. But what does it tell us? That they are citizens with the saints. They are part of this household 
that God has. Even just within these verses, we see so many of the personal benefits that Christians receive in their union with Christ. At first, we see the Ephesians, their justification before God, their own standing before him. They are no longer in this hostile relationship with God because at one time they were strangers, that they were aliens. They had that hostile relationship to God. But now they have this reconciled relationship we speak of. Not only this, we see their adoption. Not only is it they are reconciled, but they are brought into God's family. They are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. And finally, points to their sanctification that they have been sanctified. They are members with the saints. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And even for each and every one of us this morning, if you find yourself in Christ, if you are trusting in him as your Savior this morning, that these are the benefits you have in this relationship, that you have this justified standing before God, that we were once aliens, we were once strangers, we were alienated from God. But when we have put our trust in the Messiah Jesus in his death and resurrection, God looks at us regardless of what sin we have, what we have done, and he sees perfect obedience and full satisfaction, but it's not our obedience and it's not our satisfaction. Rather, it is Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we are clothed in. That in the most simple way I can put it, that I tell the children at Faith Kids Club, that God's looking at us, and he looks as if, just as if we have never sinned. And that's one of the greatest comforts for us as a Christian that you can hold on to these promises for yourself. When you have this relationship, when you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, regardless of what you have done, regardless of what your past looks like, regardless of how heinous you think your sin is this morning, that you're trusting that God is the God who reconciles ungodly people. That he's looking at you and from all eternity saw the best that you could offer and still was willing to send his son Jesus to die for you. That you are called to turn to the cross, turn to this Savior who bled and died for you, freely knowing that he, in this relationship, has wholly forgiven you of all past, present, and future sins that you will commit. And not only this, this gives us grounds for ourselves, of how we can view ourselves, that so often we fall into this, this trap of self-condemnation, of self-hatred, of that voice that tells us, there's no way God could ever forgive me for that. Yet what was the assurance of pardon we heard from the Apostle Paul this morning? It's that when we trust in the Savior, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God freely looks at you, pardons your sin, and accepts your person, accepts you as a righteous person because of the righteousness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. 
the blood of Jesus Christ. That if you're trusting in these promises, saying the words, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, that you actually have hope of the gospel, that this is the very gospel itself. But not only that, not only do we see this blessing of our justification, we also see our adoption. It's not simply the fact that we need to have a reconciled relationship with God, but God actively brings us into something. He reconciles and pardons us, but then he brings us into his family. That we can genuinely call ourselves a child, a son of God. And in that culture, there were so many rights and privileges that you had of your father, that you were watched, you were cared for, you were pitied, you were provided for. That God looks at you not as a sinner, justly deserving his wrath, but in this relationship, he looks at you as his child, an heir to all the promises of his kingdom. In fact, this relationship you have with God, this adoption where he looks at you, God has this loving disposition as a loving father has to their child. Imagine, if we will, that there was a recording of everything you did in your life, of every good thing you did, but in the privacy, all that corruption, all that sin, all those moments that you would love for the world never to find out about. But now it's not just we ourselves that see it. Imagine you're watching that movie with God, the living God who has created the universe And at first that might terrify us, but because of our adoption, because he looks upon us as his children, he knew all of that. And he is turning to us not in condemnation, but in reminding us of his love for us. Even for you today who can't point to a relationship you have with your earthly father, you don't feel this, the weight of this love for yourself, or have never experienced this, that this is actually the hope that the gospel offers, is that you have a heavenly Father that loves you deeply, will not forsake you or abandon you, and that not only does he see you as his child, but you can actually look upon him as your father. Even think of the prayer we have already said. How does Christ's prayer begin? But our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There is the difference of, think about your own prayer life. When you're praying, are you just praying to a generic God? Or are you crying out to your Father? We see our justification. We see our adoption. But now, we even see sanctification here because who is he talking that they are joined together with it is with the saints themselves in verse 19 that they have been adopted they have been justified but finally that they have been sanctified made holy literally the language of saints is holy ones those who have been set apart and you know for a lot of us that might be uncomfortable because we have a lot of baggage with that title saint. 
that the Roman Catholic Church has kind of taken the capital of that title. We think of all these people in church history that they've called saints. And that is way too great of a title for me to have. That it's for, in that perspective, it is something that I have to go above and beyond anything that God would expect of me for me to even begin to have that title, saint. Yet in the Bible, it tells us that the best we can offer God, the best works, according to Isaiah, are filthy rags. That when we have done everything expected of us, that we are unprofitable servants, we have just done our duty. And yet Paul's still willing to call the church holy ones, saints. How is that even possible? Because for you today, it is your right and privilege that you might not feel this way, but God looks upon you and calls you his saint. That's where theology, systematic theologians actually help us here, that there is this difference between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. For definitive sanctification, there is this idea, John Murray calls it, where we have this radical breach with sin that our most pressing relationship is not the dominion of the kingdom of darkness, but we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ himself. That the second we come into this relationship, that we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies our inner being. That we, our old man is dead, or is better yet, dying continually, that we with Paul can say the words that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, that God looks upon you. And because of that work of the Holy Spirit, there is a real transformation that happens. But all of us know the fact that we are not sinless, that we continue to struggle day and day. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is perfectly willing to talk about his struggle with sin and how radically this struggle can be. And that's where progressive sanctification comes in, is not only are we seen in God's sight as holy as saints, but we are progressively day and day dying to our sin and living to righteousness. We are slowly humbling ourselves before the cross and looking more and more every single day like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So today, every single one of us can actually call ourselves saints. That that is not a title that the Catholic Church has a monopoly over, that you can go around the coffee table when we are done here and ask how your fellow saints are doing this morning. That that is a real title, even though we have, we have lost the weight of it. None of us have arrived. We are continually a work in progress, but we have had this radical breach with sin where we can all, those who are in Christ, say, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That these are the personal benefits for all of us this morning. All who have this relationship with Jesus Christ, these are the benefits you receive in God's covenant of grace. 
But not only this, but Paul himself moves us from these personal benefits to now look at verse 19 again. What does he do? He tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God that is now moving from these personal benefits to now Paul is willing to speak about this this corporate body that we are brought into, the very household of God himself. We've seen our personal blessings, but now we are going to see the corporate blessings we receive as a body of Christ. Because what does Paul tell us about this household? Speaking about the church here, verse 20, what does it say about the church? That it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That God's house, the universal church, this visible church, this is its foundation. It's not even the apostles and the prophets. That the language here is pointing to what the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament we're pointing people to, the testimony, the confession, the actual witness and message that they were giving. And it is Jesus Christ himself. It was the proclamation of the Messiah, his life, his death, and his resurrection that we see in the book of Acts, that even Jesus himself founds his church with this language. Because in Matthew 16, Peter says what is probably the greatest words that he would ever utter, he agrees, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. But what does Jesus say about that proclamation, that confession? In verse 19 of chapter 16, this is what Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or as my favorite Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, describes it, the apostles had the honor to be the very first fruits of the church. They were laid as the first foundation of a beautiful building. That We are all given a litmus test today as Christians in God's household of what the church ought to look like. That its foundation, its head, those who are over it, is not charismatic leaders. It's not people offering us new revelation, saying, I have a word of God from you that he revealed to me. It is not people claiming apostleship, being sent from God. It is not people claiming to even be head over the church. That the church's one foundation here is Jesus and Jesus Christ and the message he delivered in the New Testament. And that we are actually to be pointing to that message for all of us. And when we divert from that foundation, that there is something deeply wrong going on. But keep looking. Not only do we see the foundation, but we also see in verse 21 the corporate dimensions that I am speaking about. Verse 21 that in whom the whole structure, this church we speak about, is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That when we as a church meet, it is more than us just singing, it is more than just us catching up with each other, 
that the church, the proclamation of the word, us worshiping, is us meeting the triune God for worship. That he is most present, dwelling among his people when they meet as a body this morning. And that's only our vertical relationship. These are only pointing just to our vertical relationship. But they are also being joined together, we see. That is not just me, Jesus, and the Father, but is me being united to Christ. And because I am united to Christ, I am united to those in the body. That even verse 22, Paul moves from impersonal to this personal dimension we're talking about. Verse 22, that in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is this language of what the Westminster Divines called the communion of saints, where we are united together in love, that we are sharing in the graces that God has given to us, the gifts that God has given to us, that we are members, a part of a single body. And we can actually nurture and appreciate these truths for ourselves this morning. We can begin to apply this to our own life. Because think about all those blessings. Think about the vertical relationship that our justification, adoption, all these blessings mean to us in a relationship to God. But there's also the horizontal relationship. Our justification, that we have this legal standing before God who has accepted us as righteous in his sight. That necessarily entails the fact that he has accepted other people as his sight, in his sight. That even when we may be frustrated when we may bicker among each other. That all of us, to use the words of Martin Luther, are simultaneously both saints and sinners. That God has freely decided to justify the ungodly. And that this, because of this, this is necessarily not just how God views us, but how we should also be viewing fellow people within the church that are claiming this relationship. Think about what this means for our adoption. Think about the fact that I am brought into the family of God, but the family is, again, not me and the triune God. It's me and the triune God's family. Have you ever considered the fact that when we read the New Testament, so many of the epistles don't start with you Christians, you church members, you guys. But what does Paul, Peter, all the apostles frequently call Christians? His brothers, his sisters. In fact, so often we, I've heard that when we don't know someone's name in the church, we frequently jump to brother or sister. And it almost turns into a trite title, but there's actually something real that is missed here. We have a genuine relationship with each other. We are all brothers and sisters in this family. And we know families can be messy. And yet it also should point to the love that we should have for each other, that that never-ending, unfailing, never-giving-up love that God shows us as, his, as our Father is the same love that we should be showing to each other as brothers and as sisters that even it points to sanctification. Because again, 
we can call ourselves saints because God views us that way. We've had this radical breach with sin. But that also points to the fact that there are other saints that you can go over the coffee table and ask how your fellow saints are doing this morning. But this is the view that God sees us. This, therefore, should be the view that we are viewing those in this family, fellow believers, those who are professing this relationship. This points to the horizontal nature of the benefits that we have in our personal relationship with God, but this also points to the absolute beauty we see in Christ's body. Because by the world's standards, the fact that we are so diverse that any society that would have this much diversity would be the very grounds that destroys it. Because really, what is a Pharisee like Paul, a backwater fisherman like Peter, a tax collector like Matthew, a young guy like Mark, and a physician like Luke, what do they all have in common with each other? It's the fact that they are members in this church, in this body. That they are brought into not only this relationship, but they are brought into this family with each other. That this is one of the, this is the only society, this is the only body of people where both a CEO and a drug addict, an alcoholic and a neurosurgeon, the celebrities over in Hollywood and nobodies in flyover states are all members of one body. If this is true, we ought to not just see the church as some corporate corporation, some consumeristic body that we consume, that we can just make or break the relationship with, that it is Christ's church. And not only should we be in love with Christ, but this is actually moving us to have a love for his bride and for other people. This even points to the diversity of gifts, that we are not all talented in the same way, that not all of us are talented or gifted by God in preaching, in teaching. But all of us are gifted, that the spiritual gifts are gifted to all of us in one way or another, that some of us are active in mercy. Some of us are gifted in evangelism. Some of us are gifted in teaching. God has given gifts to the church, and it is not just the people, the ministers, that have been given these gifts. But it is to the entire body that we have mutual benefit with each other. But third, and finally, this points us to the goal, the substance, the head over which this church is built. Because again, look at verse 20. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But what does Paul go on to say that Christ himself is the cornerstone. The most literally in the Greek, it's the most important stone. And commentators debate, go back and forth over whether that is the, the foundation, the structural foundation on which this building is built and which it stands and falls, or it is the crowning jewel, the preeminent head that we are all pointing and growing up into. I think Paul is actually intentionally being ambiguous to show us the beauty of who Christ is. 
of both realities are true for us this morning. That the church, as we have said, stands or falls on the proclamation, on the message, on the person and work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. But he is also the preeminent head in which the church belongs to. And when we begin to divert from that message and from that person, then we are missing the point on which we even have this church body. But keep going. Not only do we see the chief cornerstone, but also in verse 21, it tells us in Christ we are growing into a holy temple. We are the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That is not just arbitrary communion we have each other, but is communion and growing up together in this relationship with Christ. That in verse 22, it is in Christ you are being built together. All these things are pointing to the reality of our goal, our foundation, and the ends to which we gather together. And it's because of the Savior Jesus Christ, who is head over his church. Or again, as Goodwin calls it, Jesus Christ is called the foundation, and what is his church? It's his building built up for him with a great deal of arc and architect. So to that question, and in closing, can I have Jesus without the church? Yes, there are extraordinary examples we can point to of people that have no ability to be a part of the corporate body of believers. That they are in northern North Dakota, not within a distance of 300 miles of any gathering of believers. And we can use extraordinary examples, which is why it's important to talk about ordinary examples that this would have not even been a question that the church was asking. That necessarily, when I have this relationship with Jesus Christ, a natural benefit, a gift that he has given me, is to be with other believers. Because it is actually not our church. It is Christ's church. And one person, a PCA pastor, gives this example that it would be the equivalent of a person going up to a husband and telling him, I like you, I think you're great, I love hanging out with you, and we should get together as much as we can, but your wife, she's kind of annoying, she's kind of a wreck of a person, I really just don't, can't stand her whatsoever at all. Can I just have a relationship with you? Can we get together and just leave your wife out of it? that it is Christ's church. It is Christ who we are being built up towards. And the natural response we have this morning is to not out of obligation, but out of love for Christ, want to be among other people as well that love him too. And it is with that that we pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the many gifts and blessings that we have received, that we have been justified in your sight, that we are freely pardoned of all of our sins, that we 
are adopted into your family. We are sanctified. We have all these personal benefits of Jesus Christ who has died on the cross and is offering this relationship to us today. Father, I pray that we would absolutely fall in love with not just yourself, but with other believers, that we would continue to be nurtured in the faith and help to grow up unto this end, to grow up into this deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we pray 